Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Today, I have Ed Reed on the podcast. He was the CTO and one of the founding team of the infamous subscription snack company, Graze. The business not only innovated in how we eat, but also launched the idea of subscription boxes in the mail. After taking over the UK, they went on to launch in the US and were named one of Britain's 100 fastest growing businesses and they're now available in most stores across the UK and the US. Ed left the business two years ago and enjoyed decompressing and working out his next steps, trying different things before he's now moved on to founding a new business called tiny.co, which is innovating in the professional childcare space. Ed has a really fascinating story, both personally and in business, and we go into his background, the skills that he learned growing up, and how he fell into the team of Greys, and just the crazy ride of growing the business so quickly. We cover some of their biggest mistakes, and how some of their failures actually saved them in the long run. So there's some really interesting lessons here about how things that can seem really terrible at the time can actually be a blessing in in disguise. So Ed is a super bloke and I was really grateful to have the conversation with him and it's my pleasure to share a really, really fascinating story with you today, which I know you're going to really enjoy and learn from. We start the interview hearing about Ed's life story in four minutes. I guess most significant event was the fact that I was I grew up as a mega geek in a family of medics. So I had no stimulation from within my family to learn to be a techie or anything like that. But my granddad was a nuclear weapons research engineer for the NWRE in Basingstoke. So he was the ultimate granddad, like had all the gadgets, all the computers growing up. We used to inherit his old, you know, acorns, electrons when he got rid of them. And the trip to grandma and granddad's house was like the most exciting thing because it just meant playing with granddad's gadgets. And so I sort of age, I don't know what it was, probably eight, he started to teach me to code. And that just became a, like, you know, I knew it. I knew I was in massively into computers. Um, he also played the violin and I, I learned the violin and he was just my idol growing up, basically. And yeah, one thing led to another. I kind of ended up building websites for, as a teenager, selling them to people. Um, as I'm sure is the story of hundreds and hundreds of teenagers across the, the globe. We built a kind of, me and a mate built the, the equivalent of Facebook for our school, but never thought to call it Facebook or open it up to anyone else or and so that was fun um ended up studying uh, engineering sorry at uni um I realized I've kind of focused very much on the work and academic side of my life but I was used to think back I was just a, a mega geek and a nerd growing up like not particularly socially skilled didn't really know how to talk to girls went to study engineering at uni continued doing bits and pieces of entrepreneurial stuff on the side and Applied for a couple of jobs, but didn't get the main one I wanted, which was for Google. So ended up continuing the business, which actually by the time I'd left university was keeping me extremely busy and earning me a good living. And then it was that that, that led into meeting the, the guys that would go on to be my, my Grey's co-founders. So they were, met them in a pub, got introduced, 
Um, I was building websites, freelance, one-man band, um, designer, developer kind of thing, and they were they were running a little design studio in the same town. We kind of saw each other as rivals initially, but then started working together and on sharing clients because we had sort of slightly different things to bring to the table. And then they were like, you know, six months into that, they were like, Ed, actually, sorry, we we got to tell you, we're off, you know, we, we're shutting this thing down because our mate's got this idea for a, a new business that he wants to start selling food through the post. And I was like, genuinely gutted. They'd become really good mates. We were working together really well. I was really enjoying. For the first time in my life, I'd kind of found some people that I really loved working with and we really, you know, clicked. And eventually they were like, look, we actually would like you to come and join us to build the website for this business. So I was immediately like, right, I'm in 100%. Um, moved to London. That was 10 years. <laughs> and then about two years ago, stepped down from that. Having, yeah, as I said, having been there for the best part of 10 years, which was, a, you know, amazing, amazing fun and learned an enormous amount. And like, I feel the luckiest person in the world to have kind of landed into that. But 10 years was enough. And then, yeah, last few years have been a bit bits of consulting, mostly around kind of e-commerce and tech stuff. But I realized I didn't want to be a big team CTO anymore. Actually, my love was in the beginning of, of the company stage. And so it was kind of, what am I going to do next? knew I wanted to start something else but didn't wasn't sitting on any of ideas of my own but then over the course of that year got introduced to Brett who's my now new co-founder with the new business he was working on an idea in the early years education space having come from a background in that and he needed a technical co-founder to do it with and I was like well this sounds good and I think sort of tying it back together like early years education I, I consider the sort of that period of having had my granddad around aged five or six, and that being such a formative time for realizing that I had this love of, of computers and coding and tech that I, I was extremely lucky to have had, right? As in that, in that, especially given that, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't taught in schools correctly. It was kind of seen as a administrative thing, an IT class was what you got. Yeah, so I've got this, like, I think it kind of, when I met Brett and I, I sort of started thinking about a sector that I knew nothing about, it started to make me think, I don't know, it's just such a, it's, there's so much great stuff to be done in this area mm. and childcare in particular is you know so broken for all parties involved you know parents find it very difficult to find great carers it's hugely expensive um the childcare providers themselves you know are under so much pressure and the system kind of works against them so yeah that's where we've where we've settled and that's what i've been doing for the last year so it's really fascinating what your granddad was doing you know how he got into that so he was an electronic engineer and i think that was his whole career was with the NWRE. But fundamentally, he was a real kind of inventor character. You know, um, electronic engineer in the 60s working on extraordinary technology. Never, He was never allowed to talk about the specifics of what he did. So he was Official Secrets Act um, signatory. And he died, sadly, um, when I was about 17. You know, his widow, my grandma, still alive, um, wonderful woman. And she is, to this day, maintains that even she never knew really what, what he did. Um, one of his colleagues and best friends is still alive. It was great because he had this, this really close friend. There was a family friend of the, of the family. And I think the two of them, it must have been quite important. They were working on such interesting and potentially quite difficult things at times. Yeah. And I, f- I feel like it was, really, it was really nice to know that he had a really good mate who kind of was in on it and knew what they were doing so they could share things together. And, but yeah, it's fascinating. Cool. So well, when you said you studied engineering, was that specific like electronic engineering? It's quite a unique course actually so of course it was at Bristol so I didn't know what I wanted to do I just knew I liked technology and gadgets and like how things worked 
and engineering in, in, in any of the specific disciplines had never really a, a sort of appealed particularly because it, it always felt too sort of narrow on one particular area where I didn't have enough kind of interest. And actually also computer science I didn't really want to do because I, for some reason I always thought when I was sort of a teen, like, like choosing degree age, I'd always seen computing as like a hobby that I loved, but I'd never ever thought this could be something that could really be a job. As a result, I was like, no, I want to do something broader than that. And I want to do something where it like, I learn different things, but also I want to make sure that there's a really good element of like tech and computing in it. And I stumbled across this course at Bristol, which at the time there were only, so I, there was, I was only one of four people who graduated it in my year. And it was called engineering mathematics. And it was basically, you know, it, it wasn't really the mathematics of engineering. That's kind of too simple a way of looking at it. It was basically how to use maths and computing and simulation to model real world engineering systems across kind of all sorts of different disciplines. So we did a year, two years basically of kind of a, what's best described as like a general engineering degree, just sitting in every other department's course, um, you know, lectures. And then two years of kind of more focused mathematical modeling, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that sort of stuff. A um, bit of genome, computational genomics, Ooh. which was quite interesting. The guy that the professor that ran my or did my final year project was a is a professor of computational genomics still there, which was fascinating. So I kind of got quite a good grounding in like a lot of stuff that you know. In what when was that? Sort of two thousand and two, two thousand and three. I'd say it was quite early machine learning. And now having seen all of that that sector kind of explode in the advent of kind of cloud computing and you know compute computational power being or available to everybody at the click of a button. You know it's amazing having watched that space. I feel a bit silly that I didn't yeah, throw myself into that because I thing. kind of had a just about enough understanding of it to be able to probably go Yeah, yeah. Go into so it. At the time, you would technically be considered an expert kind of thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, at least had more than a you know, working knowledge of it. So you then met potential co-founders like, while you are doing consulting. And so how, how did the like, conversation go in terms of when you sort of first have an idea? How did you guys split up the company and go okay we're going to build this potential huge idea but potentially goes nowhere and you kind of it's a bit of an awkward conversation when you first start of like who gets what yeah so i mean i think we were lucky that the the head of it was graham bosher who was who had previously built one of the companies that became love film and so he was the kind of mastermind of it and you know graham had an amazing amount of knowledge around distribution systems and factory systems and how to build businesses that were extremely operationally efficient in fulfillment and distribution, basically. That's what Love Film had taught him. But at the same time, he, he can smell an opportunity like no one else and had spotted that health food and in particular kind of healthy eating at work was really becoming a big thing that people were talking about. And he, his kind of, his genius was to spot that there was an opportunity potentially to send healthy food through the post using a kind of I guess a feature of the Royal, Royal Mail pricing, which was that, you know, boxes up to 24 and a half millimeters high can be classed as letters and could go through, if they fitted through a letterbox, basically, then you, you paid a letter price for them rather than a parcel price. And so it was that, that kind of marriage of like, I know how to build a business doing that. And I can see the kind of cost economics working and an opportunity in health food that is just exploding. And so he was the one that kind of brought the team together and, you know, gave us all founding status, which was, which was great. And for me, that was, you know, taking that opportunity was like the most exciting, going to work for someone who was, who had that kind of background, had the startup mentality, was willing to give us founding shares. You know, I'd say we were all quite techie and there was a lot of engineers, but that spread from, you know, Neil, for example, who was like the most extraordinary kind of physical structures engineer. He could dream up 
factory layouts in his head. He could model them in 3D. You know, we literally built all of our own factories and all of them were 3D modeled and packaging design we did ourselves. Everything we did literally. It was the most, in some respects, I think we were quite arrogant about it but it was like a sort of we're all quite young mm, a bit like what, tesla yeah. with a kind of a little bit yeah i mean I, I hate to compare us to that but we literally we were quite proud of the fact even like even two three years in that we had literally outsourced nothing we did everything ourselves we had three of us were techies so they were kind of me doing effectively the front end the customer experience stuff we had another guy tom percival who also came from love film who did all of our kind of internal billing systems and helped with a lot of the architecture the database all that sort of stuff um, Brendan, who also came from Love Film, who built all of the factory, basically the factory and distribution systems. So the, th- the three of us kind of ran the tech, and that was great. None of us had really built big systems before, so you know I, I was berated for years by our t- by the team that we hired for you know awful architecture. <laughs> but but it worked, and we you know got us through. You know the company grew well with it, but it was I don't think it was a joy to work on for anyone else that came in. And then the other three, so we talked about Neil, we talked, you know, Ben, Ben, an incredible kind of general businessman, I'd say. He was like the deal maker. He was the charmer. He was the, effectively the front man of the business who charmed the pants off anyone and got us deals that were ridiculous and, you know. And then Tom Newton, who ended up being my flatmate for the best part of five, six years, who was the guy who came up with the name, did all the branding, the look and feel, the kind of, the he was the voice of the consumer and also he was the real foodie, I think. So... So yeah, so a really remarkable mix of kind of seven people that all brought something very different to the table. And I think part of the, the reason Grace was so successful was that this was a genuinely unique combination of people that all got on extremely well. Like we never fell out. We had massive arguments for days upon end, but we were always like, there was always like a, this is fun. We're having a laugh. We're mates. You know, we'd go to the pub at the end of the day. It literally was the most very, very efficient working, very, very direct with each other. But there was never any politics or kind of, because ultimately Graham kind of was running it and everyone kind of knew that was, so there wasn't, we weren't tussling for vote, you know, he had the casting vote on everything. There yeah, was, all, there was never any. to make your voice heard and actually explain. Yeah, what and we had great was. debates and we were able to influence his thinking. Yeah, so it was a really, really special team. Um, I think there was obviously, you know, a lot of skill in Graham having brought that team together, but also a lot of luck in it working so well. Yeah, it's fascinating as like literally the last podcast that just got released was um, into the marketing branding founder part of Just Eat. He okay, yeah, yeah. Had similar reflections of like, it was like an awesome kind of right place at the right time startup, but it was also like the team as well as and everyone was just sort of super on board and on track with each other and had like lots of fun. And I think it is, there's something about it. Like it's a, it was, a, yeah, it makes a huge difference. And I think that what then, it also sets the tone, you know, we, we ended up hiring an amazing bunch of people. It was, you know, it wasn't just us, let's be clear, like it was, you know, but I think that kind of culture and that kind of work ethic that was set right at the beginning meant that the sorts of people that came on the journey with us were all quite similarly minded. So can you take me through how it first like launched? I think Graham had, he had done a lot of that on his own and with the support of the guys in the kind of year running up to us starting. So they had like a prototype box, they'd tested sending bits and pieces through through the post and seeing whether they survived. So they had, you know, all of that, there was a lot of like very lean trial that went into that. But by the time I joined and got involved, Graham was beginning to talk significant fundraise with a lot of people. And actually we had, he raised the money, to be clear, like off the back of his love film experience. And we, we raised from about, I think a sum total of about 55 investors, lots of angel, you know, money from individuals, you know, sort of putting in 10, 20k each. 
and then one VC who kind of led the round, but with only about I think 150k, something like that. So sort of a, it was a it was a sizable seed round. Um, it's probably the world pre-seed round, just how you look at it now. Um, I think we raised about 1.1 million, something like that, and that was enough to kind of give us, you know, building a factory and building a team. And and so with the launch was basically, you know, we I think we officially started in April, and we were sending our first very very early trial boxes in about September, August September which coincidentally was the time that Lehman Brothers collapsed so August 2008 and we yeah we were it forced us actually to genuinely rethink the the product because we'd basically been you know in the run up to that we'd been thinking our target customer is you know wealthy high disposable income office workers who are looking for you know quality healthy food at their desk so they don't have to get to go to the office canteen. We were thinking of it as like a lunch or a meal that was like a really good healthy alternative that you could literally be delivered to you at your desk. Or on the way back from the gym, you pick it up from the post room and that kind of thing. And the price point was coming in at like, you know, they're much higher than we ended up settling on. And the financial collapse kind of forced us to think, actually, you know what, we need to build a, an affordable kind of mass market, more mass market proposition. So we kind of drastically cut back in the kind of size of the box and, and the sorts of things that went in it and ended up settling on the price point of about four four quid which is where it still is now and I do yeah I sort of think back on that that moment of, of financial crisis kind of happening is almost like a bit of a blessing that we it happened when it did and we were able to kind of change things it is it's great thinking about moments like that when things that seemed disastrous at the time actually yeah. end up being being a bit of a blessing there's one other interesting one actually later on in the in the years where we had a there was a Royal Mail postal strike, mm. which was around kind of 2010 2011 time. We were a few years in, probably trying to raise money at the time. It was like pretty pretty critical, and at the time one of the big parts of the product was that we sent fresh fruit through the post, and we'd sort of been led to believe through customer research and through our own vision for the product that like fresh fruit was like a core part of of the offering and had actually invested quite a lot of money in building a, a pretty high-tech food preparation facility that let us cut and prepare fresh fruit in like a super clean environment that meant that we basically learned that if you want to send fresh fruit on without a, a cool chain like non-refrigerated through the post then it will survive or certain fruit will survive quite well as long as it's cut in a very very clean environment and very sharp knives so something about the way that fruit like deteriorates is if you yeah. cut it bluntly and in a in a, in, a, in a with any kind of sort of bacteria and then that that's what makes it starts to make it go brown and moldy or whatever. But actually, if you do it in a very clean height, so we actually built in a, what's called a high care environment, which is the same as they use to prep like fish and meat, that kind of level of cleanliness. So you literally look like sort of hazmat suits and positive pressure in the room and all this sort of stuff that you know. And, but we used to prepare our fruit in there. And amazingly, we kind of got it to work. So like things like pineapple and apple and oranges and grapes and all this sort of stuff would, would go out through the post. 90%, 98% would sort of arrive next day through first class Royal Mail and would arrive in good condition. And so remarkably, we've got this thing working and, and it kind of, you know, it, it wasn't without its downsides. It was very expensive. Like it was hard to get fruit that was of the right quality to do it. If the boxes turned up late, then the fruit was typically ruined. It might last a few days, but it certainly wouldn't last a week. And anyway, that, so yeah, the, the Royal Mail strike happened and we were immediately caught in this situation where boxes were turning up, you know, much later than the, the next day delivery that you'd usually get with first class. 
so we were forced to kind of basically stop sending fruit for that period. And so we changed the boxes to be like only kind of ambient snacks. And then when the strike finished, we were like, God, you know, it hasn't done anything to our numbers. Everyone's, no one seems to have complained. No one seems to have noticed. Basically, the customers didn't seem to care. And so we, we surveyed them before we, um, you know, turned fruit back on and said, actually, how much do you want it back? And we found that people didn't particularly, at least, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an overwhelming, like, and we kind of made the hard decision. What it eventually led to was making the hard decision to shut down that, that side yeah. of the business. Seems like a big like going backwards, but actually, yeah, but actually it was it was really enormously expensive. Forwards. It didn't, and I think you know it's a good example again of like something going pretty badly wrong. But actually, it was a fairly defining moment in the company history. You know, I don't think we'd have reached profitability when we did had it had we carried on doing fruit. And I think ultimately, grades, what we'd still we at that point we still hadn't admitted to ourselves something which we now have, which is that we were a snack company. <laughs> so yeah. like it was very much a we spent a lot of time still trying to do product development around. How can we develop a healthy meal lunch that you can send to somebody? You know, we, we spent a lot of time doing some really interesting product development on that. Like salads, like we bought a retort machine, which is effectively the machine that you use to can, to make canned vegetables or whatever. Yeah. But we, we had it specially developed to do, to be able to do a retort in the Gray's packaging and tested all sorts of things like healthy salads and, yeah. you know, med veg and mm, grains gosh. and stuff like that. Yeah, if you just started from the start of just... Snacks. Yeah. And then eventually I remember a meeting like years later where we were like, are we a snack company? Is that, can wow. we just admit that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes the most sense because like, everyone never even needed fresh fruit, but it is sort of easier for people to just buy fruit and things, whereas it's more the snacks that you were delivering were a bit more unique at the time. Exactly. I mean, now yeah. it's sort of, you know, you go to the supermarket, that's the only thing you can buy at the checkout is like the healthy snacks kind of thing. Yeah. But at the time it was, that was the hard thing to get hold no of. No one was making individual portions of interesting mixes of healthy nuts and yeah. seeds and dried fruit. It seems silly, but like you could either buy, you know, big mixed bags from, you know, that were the same in every supermarket, quality's a bit average, and you get bored of it. You know, you, by the time you've eaten a kilogram of, of yeah. mixed nuts, you're kind of, you know, you've had enough nuts to... And actually, the, yeah, to talk tech again, there's a very good reason why that was the case, which we learned, which is quite another quite interesting story. So if you take... You know, um, how do they make a mixed bag of nuts when you're selling a kilogram at a time? They put loads of different raw ingredients into effectively a cement mixer in the factory and then scoop out a bag and fill up a bag. And that works fine when you're dealing with a kilogram of product. But if you're trying to make 50 grams of it in a small punnet, taking a scoop out of a cement mixer of a 50 gram punnet mm. doesn't work because mo most of the time you don't get, if there are three ingredients in there, yeah, you yeah, don't get the right mix of each. You, in fact, you never get the right mix of each. So we, for a long time, knew that, well, we used to hand pack the box, the, our individual punnets for a long time. So we had like people literally yeah. you know, filling them by hand. <laughs> right. we've, got, we've got five cashews, he's got five albums yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and we then thought we need to outsource this manufacturing because this doesn't scale. Worked with a big manufacturer who makes the big bags of, basically for every supermarket, there's a big, one single big manufacturer. And they started making our punnets and we had this, we never, we didn't realize this issue until they started making the punnets. And we were like, this is terrible. Like customers complaining, they've ordered, they've got a, you know, I don't know, um, Copacabana mix with Brazil nuts and something else in it. And there's no Brazil nuts in it. So we had a big disaster and we ended up like literally reversing out of that deal and, and moving the manufacturing back in house and started investigating like, what can we use to manufacture at scale using trying to get the mix right. And there's a thing called a, a well, it's called a multi-head weigher, which is basically a very, very high-speed, high-tech weighing machine that can individually weigh 
very small grams of individual products into a single, you know, and that's one of the most amazing things in the factory. And that's, you know, we've ended up, Grazy is a manufacturer of snacks. We never intended to do that early on as well. That was a... Yeah, yeah, but you, that's not really a, what you'd put into the sort of efficient business model kind of thing, but then actually it kind of starts to make sense at scale. But yeah, that's quite cool, because I, I did think about doing like um, a bit of a medical tech kind of things, and you can buy lots of different supplements and stuff, but you have to kind of like source, oh, I want my cholesterol, I want my like glutamine or whatever, and if you kind of do like a machine where you kind of just put all the different things that you think is the mix for you into like a pill, so you'd have to like have like 10 different okay. bottles of things at once. Yeah, yeah. It'd be awesome, but then like personalizing it is just like a huge massive headache cost, and I was like, yeah, I don't think I have time to raise millions to make this sort of work. I mean, I could kind of do it at home, literally having all the raw ingredients myself and like pilling it, but I was just like, ah, uh, yeah, I've got other business ideas. <laughs> I'll just go do this <laughs> instead. Yeah, I don't know how pill, I, yeah. I imagine that pills ha- rely on an enormous economies of scale. So would be quite interesting to hear a bit about like team stuff, because I guess you learned a lot about hiring people mm. and... Um, like you said, like annoying them with uh, your decisions as a terrible technical, technical yeah. thing. <laughs> it's quite fascinating because I haven't. So I almost did just a CTO podcast when I started because I had like quite a few CTO friends that I first interviewed and um, ended up not. But it was quite fascinating. So it would be interesting to hear just a bit more about that in terms of how do you screen for technical people? Because that's always like a hard one, yeah. especially for like non-technical founders. They don't know how to do that. So I'm a big believer in, especially at the very, very early stages of a startup, that it isn't technical skill necessarily that you are really interviewing for when you're hiring for developers. Like they need to be able to build you things and they need to be able to work and they need to be relatively quick at doing it. But the ability for that person to communicate, to share ideas, to contribute to debates, to tune into the business is almost more important than being the ultimate engineer or architect or kind of technical expert. And I think that that changes as, as a business grows up. So who I am hiring now at, at my startup versus the sorts of people that you might hire into a team of 30 or 100 or 200 engineers is like, I think very different. Yeah. And I think, I think I didn't learn that until much later on at Grays as well, as in I used to hire people, effectively, who were like me early on at Grays, who were like, can talk to the business, can kind of build things on their own, can kind of do and can work with the business, scope something, design it, build it, run it, you know, deploy it. So my initial few hires at Grays were all, you know, there were two or three people that were a lot like that. And I used to love working with them because we just got stuff done, got stuff out the door, business kept moving, we were iterating quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And that was all fine. But what I didn't get right at the same time as doing that is also really start thinking about who are the sorts of people that are going to help us make sure that we shape this platform and this architecture so that kind of from a software engineering perspective, we're actually building something that is scalable, not just from a traffic perspective, but is scalable in terms of a team of people working on it. I actually think we got the traffic scalability stuff fairly right. Like we were pretty good on kind of knowing you know, we had a database administrator who worked for us. We had like good sysadmins who would build, you know, so we had like a good scalable technical system, but the code was architected like a bowl of spaghetti. And like, it basically meant that new people joining the team, it was a massive ramp up to coming on board. It meant that anytime you wanted to change anything, you had to change or touch every other bit of the system. It was a big monolith and it, and it was a poorly architected one at that. 
So what ended up happening was, we, I think we went through a period of, of actually really struggling to get things done because we just needed to figure out how to change this architecture and that, that slows the business. So we had this amazingly adapt, you know, versatile, agile and fast moving company for the first few years in terms of a tech and then it started to really slow down and the team got bigger and we didn't find we weren't making as much progress as we used to and people were getting frustrated with it and i think that what i've learned from that is that it just i just need to balance it a bit better going you know so i think that the i still think it's right that the very first few people you see hire in a startup are those kind of more entrepreneurial more sort of yeah. can do a bit of everything and get things done quickly there's a kind of looking for those the sort of lead architect and the, yeah, the, the sort of like is is really is important kind of much sooner than I realized it at Gray's, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I interviewed um, the CTO, or I can't remember, it's basically the CTO transfer-wise, but he was in that job at eBay and PayPal before that when okay. they hired him. And yeah, like, right. he was very, he hasn't really done coding in a long time, but he sort of was very much more of the overview of like, hey, how do we build like a really efficient architecture yeah. that people can really contribute? I think a lot of, a lot of CTOs talk a lot about thinking about, like they think about the team as an engineering problem as well, which I really like. And I think that is a very good way of thinking about it is like how people interact, how process evolves, you know, the, everything from kind of the way that people communicate, the way that they organize themselves, the way that emotions play into it, everything can be seen as and almost modeled like an engineering problem, right? And I think there are some really interesting people, CTO type or engineering manager type characters who genuinely get like a, a thrill from the idea of like engineering a team. And I really like, I really like that. I think it's a good way to kind of personally, that sort of stuff used to turn me off, I'd say. But actually thinking about it like that is a quite a nice way of thinking, kind of giving the problem some, making it a bit more appealing as <laughs> a problem yeah, to work yeah. on, I guess. How can you get your inputs, get yeah. the right outputs kind of thing? And, and I also used to be, we, I used to, this makes me cringe a bit, but I used to, you know, early days of Grey's, I used to be very proud of the fact that we didn't have a process. I was like, processes gets in the way. <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it stops you being entrepreneurial. It, like it slows you down, all this sort of stuff. And actually, you know, just hire great people and that, you don't need process, right? I used to be proud of that. I used to think that was what that was what made us so quick. And I think I've kind of, I bet you if you speak to my colleagues and co-founders now, that I'm the one who's probably banging the drum most about following process and sticking to process. And it's it's complete I've completely changed in my like in my kind of mindset on that. And I think that that's something I definitely learned as the company got bigger was that you, you know, you process is like is the way that you make sure that people are able to do things quickly and efficiently. And the thing you mustn't do is let process get in the way if it's broken and not working. Yeah, you've if got you've got to good be... feedback of, okay, why, like, let yeah. people know why they're doing it that way and be able to question it the whole time. Yeah, and you iterate your process just like you iterate a product or you iterate mm-hmm. something, you know. But the, having a process is so critical because if you don't, then, especially when you start hiring people who aren't necessarily so entrepreneurial or don't like speaking up or they need to know that, like, this is how things get done. If I have an idea, what is the point when I should raise it and who should I talk to about it? And and like, if you don't have that defined, then people yeah. can't contribute like that and they get stressed and, you know. So I'm, I'm a big one now for like, always trying to get everybody to follow the process. If I see that not working, if I see people not following the process, then it's like a good thing to remind them that they should, but also to yeah. figure out like, what is it that they are feeling they need to circumvent, why do they need to circumvent it? What's the problem here? Nice, okay. So, one more question, I guess, around Grays is, it did feel a bit like, well, for me, it felt a bit like kind of like an overnight success where I just never heard about Grays, and then suddenly it's like, oh wow, Grays is everywhere, which was definitely a few years after it had been around, obviously. 
Did it feel to you like there was a moment when suddenly it, it became really big, like you just had like one branding campaign that just changed things? Yeah, there was a moment like that actually, which was, it was very, very early on. We realized that boxes arriving to people at work were, was a real event. You know, we used to get emails from people or, just, or talk to customers and they say, yeah, I'm the most popular person in my office when the greatest box turns up. Like everybody was at my desk asking me what it was genuinely like fascinated by this thing that looked beautiful and was like a fun gift for me and I didn't know what was in it, it was a surprise element and that kind of moment was new to consumers like it was it's sadly not new to consumers anymore I think mm. no one bats an eyelid anymore but like when when we kind yeah, of went great before Amazon was really that big to be yeah. fair like nobody was getting deliveries to work really nobody was getting fun deliveries to work so we basically sort of spotted that this this moment was like a massive like opportunity to kind of grow the business because we could effectively get <laughs> referrals from it i think we'd been doing referral you know graham had, had insisted that we built a referral mechanic into the product right from the beginning from his experience at love film but we just kind of doubled or tripled the, re- the kind of the size of the of the reward of the referral um offer so it went from being like you know, get your first box for a quid or something to being like, get a free box, get a free box. Mm, yeah, I remember like, we all, everyone like, yeah. in my halls like, did it at least once and so, yeah, maybe like 20% of people kept it up but yeah, like everyone got Students a box. Students were definitely a loss, major loss. Yeah, but, like, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's lots of things you could look back on and say, was, was it great for the brand? Almost certainly not. Is Grace now permanently associated with like, yes, probably, or at least for a long period of time, it's going to be going to, you know, struggle to shake that. But there's an absolutely no doubt we, for a very long period of time, were growing truly virally. So every customer was referring at least one other. And the cost of sending out one of those boxes in terms of like operational co- was cheaper than most marketing campaigns you could run, right? So Yeah, yeah. Compared to like getting people to click on an ad yeah. and say actually yeah, pulling yeah. through and buying is... Yeah. So that moment, I do remember very clearly we had kind of big, you know, dashboards in the office and like klaxons that went off when people signed up and that kind of thing. And there was a point when... I remember very clearly we had to turn off the klaxon because it was going off every second or every three seconds or something. And we were like, it was thrilling. And we had a small period of time when it really grew, it propelled us into like scale. And I think it isn't the case now, I'm sure. Like referrals is still a small bit of the, nobody really cares about Mm. that anymore. And we look back on it now and we kind of think, well, there was was a lot going on there. Like A, it was hugely, it was a novelty and people were really excited about it. You know, we were effectively doing what most retail brands nowadays would do, which is just like sampling, like giving out products outside a tube station is kind of what we were doing, but through the post. And that was an amazing way to build a brand, right? And we didn't realize it, but actually by getting so many boxes out for free, everybody knew who Grey's was, everybody did. So it meant that like launching into supermarkets five years later was actually like a breeze because you'd go into these retail meetings with like, a brand that had never been on the shelves before, but everybody knew. So it was a, yeah, it was, um, I can't remember what your question was. It was, uh, <laughs> that was the moment, moment yeah, where you kind of took off. Yeah. It was a, like I said, like I had that interview with Just Eat and they did the um, campaign of Don't Cook, Just Eat. Yeah, that was huge. That was a great about. campaign. But yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Equally good campaign that you did. I mean, I definitely remember it happening and then going across the whole uni. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was very exciting at the time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Like, as in, it, those things can only work if you've already solved like the problems of scale beforehand. Like, yeah, we so Graham's the company was built for scale from the beginning. Like, we looked started looking at factories, and we were like, no, it's going to be too small, too small, too small. You know, and and ended up 
getting a you know a big unit right from the beginning. We re-engineered the picking lines multiple times to be like super efficient, and we but we did hit we hit scaling bottlenecks, but we were just like very good at kind of getting through them and rethinking things and re-engineering processes. And actually, we ended up getting the factory we thought could only do a few thousand boxes a week to being able to do 20, 30,000 quite comfortably. So there were there were lots of moments of absolute, it felt like a massive, massive disasters internally. But one of the things we hilariously actually managed to do for the entire time at Gray's until my, my final week was never miss a dispatch, never missed a pickup until my final week when... I was obviously still technically in, in responsible for the technology and we had a major a major failing. Something went wrong, which was sort of one of those things you look back on and it just absolutely shouldn't have happened for so many reasons, but it did. And it was the first dispatch we missed in in best part of 10 years. Wow. And it was in my final week. Yeah, what? <laughs> was it just too many orders? Just a, an intern, a series of things that went wrong where the fail-safes shouldn't have they should have kicked in and they didn't. And you know how that kind of, it's that classic like yeah. chain of things. You're like, that that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous, and that's ridiculous. But they all happened at the same time, completely randomly. And everyone was sort of kind of covered it up a bit or something. No, we, it, I mean, the site was down for a period of time and yeah. we missed the dispatch and the box had to go out the next day. And, you know, but we recovered from it. It was all right. It was a database issue, basically. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, you then left and you said you did some of your own just consulting and... Is that like you building stuff for people or just kind of telling them what to do? I don't know. Um, no, it was, it was the latter, if, if they listened. So I left Grey's very much, lots of people had said to me, don't jump straight into the next thing. Like mm-hmm. give yourself time to decompress, think about what you really want to do. And so I did that for a few months. I left Grey's and did nothing for you know gardening and and actually, it was amazing how quickly you feel you, if you move into that state, you, you fill your time. Like I was still meeting people. Like people were like you know interested in in meeting, or I'd always say yes to me. I'd often be in town, having you know coffees with people, doing things, and, and kind of tinkering with stuff. But I wasn't working. And that was great. And then it was the spring, and it was like a nice few months of kind of total switch off. And then I got called by actually a guy who was one of our investors early on at Gray's, who's since a, a fairly prolific tech entrepreneur himself. Um, who was doing an interim job at another startup and he was like, I need a CTO because we've got some problems with the tech team. Like, do you want to come and do like a few days a week helping out, like diagnose the issues in this tech team, telling me, you know, working with the, the, the people who are there and give, just giving me some feedback on it. So I was like, yeah, why not? That sounds fun. So I did that for a few months and that was literally like, you know, went in two days a week, did a few one-on-ones with the team tried to get my head around the architecture and fed back to the interim CEO, who was this this kind of old contact of mine, um, you know, issues. And, and we talked a bit about how to help improve the process and who needed hiring and so on. So that was kind of nice. And then similar thing happened in the summer. I got called by another a friend who I'd met through a conference a few years before who ran, he was a director of product at a big smart home manufacturer. And he was like, Ed, we've got some issues with our e-commerce operation. Like, we'd love you to come and help figure out how to improve the website and how to improve the team process there. So that was like more full on, um, big, big company, much bigger than Gray's, kind of my first experience in kind of more of a corporate environment. And I was there for about six months doing three days a week and kind of enjoyed it. It was a massive learning curve, but found it very, very difficult to get anything done. We went through, I'd say, in terms of like process and team, I really struggled to change anything. Like it was... I think that had an impact to the extent that 
we launched a big product while I was there, and I feel like the product experience online was much better than it had been before. And I sort of had a, I could take a bit of satisfaction from that. But ultimately, like I left, having done six months there, feeling like the process hadn't really changed. I hadn't really been able to fix anything, and that it, the problem was either greater than I was able to influence, or it was beyond my skills to be able to work to be the you know, basically the politician that needs to make that change. And I think really that was the trigger that made me think, you know what, I definitely don't want to go and do a big, like there are job offers on the table, fortunately, for, you know, CTO jobs at some interesting companies. I went and met a few people and it made me think, no, I just, I don't, this isn't, I don't get any thrill from this. Like the bit that I love is, is the kind of creating the product and the building and the early stage stuff. And that's where I want to be again, yeah. basically. So it was good. It was a, it was a good like 18 months of like having lots of, long yeah, weekends yeah, and time off but also experiencing nice interesting things and not being too stressed by it that sounds a really useful period actually. yeah it was good i'd recommend it to anyone who's lucky enough to be have the kind of you know I, consulting is certainly not for me long term and i think some people like it but you don't feel any ownership of anything and one of the big problems of being a consultant is that you can tell people give advice all the time and you can write decks and but you're not there to actually own it and make sure it happens and you kind of leave for your other two days a week and things happen and I didn't get that full, that much fulfilment from it. I think it's probably there. Mm. Pays well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but nice. but it's not all about that. So. No, no, not at all. But yeah. it's a good way to experience the different sort of sides of things that you could be getting involved in. Yeah, exactly. It's so easy to kind of you know, get onto the corporate ladder, apparently, and then yeah. get stuck in there. Yeah, and I think philosophically as well, you kind of you end up getting addicted to a high salary as well. Like it's very easy in the kind of the world that we live in with mortgages and borrowing and all the rest of it that you kind of get a big salary like maximize your borrowing on that salary and then and then you're totally hooked on being in a corporate because you know you can only earn that if i was to go to google you'd get paid an enormous amount you'd leverage yourself up on you know there's all this sort of dangerous stuff that like you end up building a lifestyle that's yeah, absolutely reliant on that. that you have to like keep carrying yeah and then you are locked in that kind of world because you cannot go and get that pay anywhere else and I think that I personally am currently in the in the mindset of like I'd much rather not do that and kind of yeah. be a bit more flexible and so yeah it's I mean obviously a fortunate position to be in but yeah it's like it's really easy to tell people like oh cool when you're young don't don't go and rush into any jobs just sort of try different things and just take like internships for like three years of just going around different places and experience the world but actually it's sort of you kind of do somehow need to have enough money to pay for things. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm in a very, I have, you know, last few years been a very privileged position to have been able to take my time. And that's, yeah, absolutely yeah. not. It isn't something that everyone can do. But I think there's some stuff to learn, which is like not just diving into the next job because it pays better or is, I, I think, a not really obvious one. Mm. But also just need, having time to decompress is just like a, I think, extremely valuable. And if yeah. that, yeah, however you achieve that, I guess. Yeah, because you said you did a lot of gardening. Did you ever do anything else mindfulness-wise? Like <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm quite like lucky that I'm not somebody who gets particularly ever that stressed or that. Mm. And I feel like I'm quite good at kind of giving myself time to re- rest and relax. And like, you know, one really simple thing that I did, which I ended up doing, which I still do now, is I've started cycling everywhere in London. Because I was, you know, used to work in Richmond and that was kind of a, it was a long cycle that you'd very easy to not do because the weather was a bit rubbish or, you know, yeah. you weren't feeling like it. But actually being based in, more in central London, I was like, I was hopping between places on my bike, I bought a Brompton, loved it. And actually, I still now, sort of three years later, using that every day and love it. And I think that's been a big change. So I'm not somebody, I don't particularly enjoy going to the gym, I don't naturally get a lot of exercise. 
to kind of having like a cycle at the beginning of the end of the day is, has genuinely improved I think my my kind of energy at work my, like my happiness like getting in on the tube every day is just miserable it makes me stressed it makes me unhappy yeah so that's been a nice change and I, that I sort of I developed that habit I think as a result of consulting and being in and around central London because you kind of I was in lots of places in the day and it was actually genuinely more efficient to get around yeah, yeah it's really nice it was and I'm I feel like I really know London so much better than before Definitely. when I yeah. just underground the whole time. Yeah. Just arrive in these little sort of portals of different places, you know, and Definitely. Where it is. Yeah. The mental map of London I've got now is I love it. I love yeah, being yeah. I, I love just, knowing like, where I am. Arrive on any street and still yeah. get somewhere else. It's nice. And, I, and it's actually smaller than it it might yeah. seem, you know. Yeah, everything feels a lot closer whereas Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, it's definitely kind of reinvigorated my love of the city actually, and that's that was nice. Yeah, just a few holidays. I didn't do any travelling as much, but did lots of like more interesting holidays than I would have done, that kind of thing. It was a good yeah, it was a good time. Okay, cool. But no specific, well, I guess, yeah, other than cycling, no, like, formulated mindfulness, I'm going to do, like, proper yoga sessions. No, not, no. Explore this. Sort of, yeah. Always didn't try any crazy drug expeditions. No, I haven't, haven't done ayahuasca yet, <laughs> whatever you call it. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, ayahuasca. Yeah. yeah. No, I know a few people who have done it. Um, yeah. And it sort of half appeals, but it also frightens me, like, really frightens me. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what. I just don't know how much I the idea of throwing up for three days appeals, which sort of sounds like you, yeah. you do. Yeah. I'm pretty keen. <laughs> yeah. So you then, back from your consulting, then you just got a consulting offer from this? No, it was. So I was introduced to Brett. He was looking for a technical co founder. So Brett is the founder of Teach First, the big oh, wow. education yeah. charity and graduate recruiter, and had effectively started that, you know, out of being a McKinsey consultant and ran it for 15 years and kind of in a similar sort of time to me, he was stepping down as CEO and wanting to do his next thing and had sort of settled on early years education as being the thing that he wanted to do something in because he just was, you know, saw it as, as the most broken bit in the sector and knew that this time he wanted to make it very much a tech company. He had ideas around that, but also for it to be a, a company, profit making rather than a charity. And so through a mutual friend was introduced to Brett, who in the context of he needs a co-founder who, who can bring the tech to the table. I knew nothing at all about education or early years or anything like that, but was just fascinated by it as a proposition and fascinated by Brett and his background and you know the, the team of people that he could sort of access as a result of that. And, you know, spent a good few months with him discussing the idea and iterating on it. And we ended up starting to raise money back in January last year. Yeah, so the, the basic premise is that we're, we're working with independent childcare providers, so or professional childcare providers, so childminders, um, who are, you know, basically they run almost like small nurseries from their from their home. So they look after kind of five or six children from their house, and are regulated much like a school or a nursery. So they're, they're inspected by Ofsted, and they are like professional providers, but operating from their home. And they're all kind of independent businesses. They're run typically, you know, one person running the business. They do their own tax. They do their own finances. They do their own finding of customers and billing and insurance and all this sort of stuff. So one side of the proposition, what we're looking to do is build a product which like genuinely helps them run their business more effectively and takes away a lot of that admin and rubbish that they don't want to do and lets them focus on just being a great childcare provider. And so that's one side of it. And the other side of it is that a lot of parents don't think to go to childminders with their children because they're similar sort of set of issues. They don't know who to trust. They don't 
have the same kind of marketing and branding that a nursery chain might have. But there's also sort of problems around like just the efficiency of it and what happens if the child mind is sick and having to pay through the bank account every every month. And so basically what we're trying to do is build something that sits in the middle and genuinely helps both sides of that kind of transaction make things better. And ultimately with the mission that we're trying to improve outcomes for children. So there's three of us that have started together. So I had a contact from Grays who was a used to run a design agency in Birmingham, a product agency. And he he and I had become friends and met up sort of around the time that Brett and I started fundraising and he was like, yeah, I love the sound of this. I really want to get into my own thing and, and kind of got him introduced to Brett and the three of us are now on this journey together. So yeah, it's great. It's a phenomenally different challenge. I think we've set off on a journey knowing all of the problems and knowing we've got this sector that we're going after, but not having like a super clear idea, or at least when we started, of exactly how that was going to play out. Yeah. And so for me, that was a different mindset, which was at Grey's, it was very much, we are building this thing. It's very clear running towards it we're going to you know we're going to work out how to do it as we go along but we know exactly what we're building with this with tiny and the childcare business it's much more mission driven so brett is like we're going to fix childcare we're going to reinvent this sector we're going to you know look at all of these problems we're going to solve them and i think we've got a really clear plan and a really good strategy but it took us quite a while to figure that out and that was really interesting and also it's just slower because we're not talking about low consideration buying a snack box we are talking about working with providers who've got existing businesses with parents who have massive decision to where to send their child. And like the offering is just a significantly bigger thing to be trying to tackle and things move much more slowly. And so getting trial customers and working with the providers and the cycle time is just so much longer. So product development is a much longer process. Yeah, you've got like the whole kind of but it's not, but do you have like the whole school year to kind of like try things? Yeah, so that's one of the things that like in, in early years you don't have terms so much in the same yeah, way yeah. that you do. It, it, provided they often work it's sort like of in terms. period of then kids go to school, but then. Yeah, exactly. So you, there's a point when they leave that's yeah. more term driven. But when they start, it's, I mean, it's basically I've had a baby and I'm, yeah. you know, maternity or paternity leave has come to an end and you're looking to go back to work or not. Mm. And the choice not to comes with needing to look for a childcare provider and so that's just happening continuously all the time um there are definitely blips in kind of the end of the summer and maybe after christmas when i think it's sort of a bit busier people but that you know yeah we've got a really clear proposition that it's a really good team working on it and we're just working through issues around trying to convince providers to come on board with us what we've got to offer is still not quite as tangible as we want it to be and so there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation around kind of needing to have people on board to help us develop the products and develop the offering, but also not having anything to offer them yet that kind of is the carrot to come in. And there's also an element of the sorts of people we're working with are not tech savvy early adopter types that would necessarily jump at something like this when it came up. You know, you can sort of imagine in lots of sectors, a new new app, a new idea, a new solution to something is kind of inherently appealing just because it is new yeah. and in this it's very much nope we don't want to rock the boat this is kind of yeah it needs something it's proven and yeah term, which is an inherent problem with education is and yeah it's a good quote of like current education system is something invented two centuries ago taught by something from last century to people trying to live in this century Interesting. Like, yeah yeah okay yeah it's sort of pretty funny when you think of it like that yeah and i think in childcare in particular it, there has just been so little innovation and the innovation doesn't need to come in the in the sort of I think, for example, we have a thing called the EYFS here in the UK, which I think is considered the early years foundation stage, which is like a, it's sort of a curriculum, but it's not, it's very clearly not a curriculum, but it's 
designed to be a framework to help look at child development in the early years and leading up to school readiness. And it's, it's actually a brilliantly developed system that covers kind of seven key areas of learning and, and, and people use it around the world. So it's used in Australia and it's used in China and like it's considered a really great system. And I think what hasn't happened is that I guess the providers themselves are they're doing an amazing job on that side of things, but they're utterly sort of held back by so many other government issues that prevent them from progressing, like funding being cut from local authorities or, you know, there's funding that's provided to parents for the first 15 and 30 hours free childcare for children, which causes all sorts of problems with the way that childcare providers that deliver it. The system is working against them in loads of ways and it just seems to be getting worse. Yeah, that's one of the big reasons we're trying to trying to help. Definitely. Do you have much of a thing with tech for children being a problem? Because that's definitely sort of more of a, I don't know, in like school child ages, like people being stuck on their phones and iPads. Yeah. Is that like a thing? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we definitely don't want to advocate too much screen time. In fact, if anything, yeah. one of the things we're promising is that I think there's a, that, that we, our providers will not, that won't be something they just do. It's like, you know, a, a limited amount of screen time we think is an important um, thing. Um, our product itself isn't aimed at children. There are a lot oh, of, yeah, of yeah, interesting, yeah. And so do you, when you're trying to balance out the two-sided marketplace, is it, are you kind of trying to find a provider first and then in that like postcode, trying to find as many people you can kind of quickly. Yeah, good question. Stuff. We're basically focusing very closely on Islington to start with. We've sort of worked out that we want to be in one very small local area. And we've had lots of advice to say that you should just stick to a small area and just go deep, as deep mm. as you can in that area. And deep yeah, means... do things that don't scale and like go and talk to everyone exactly. and like handhold them and exactly. find so out meet every there. provider that you can, yeah. go to all the local playgroups, like own Islington from a childcare perspective and then be in a position where you can get the model working there and then to start expanding. So that's basically why we're why we're here. We're doing we're working in, you know, right in the middle of Islington. We are we've got a team of people out all the time meeting providers and trying to to really get our head around the way that it all works in this little ecosystem. It's also very local authority driven at the moment. So there's lots of reasons why it helps to have to be in one area which is governed by one single local authority rather than kind of trying to do that across lots of different boroughs in London. And so, yeah, the, the plan at the moment is we've, we, you know, we've got now got a handful of providers who are signed up and willing to kind of be tiny providers. And we're just about to start marketing to parents in the area and actually tried to get um, oh, children wow. signed up and placed. Cool. Yeah. It's yeah, an exciting time. Yeah, it is an exciting time. Yeah. So what is your earliest memory, which is kind of poignant for uh, talking about early years and stuff? Gosh. So maybe we just go with that one. Yeah, very good thought. I mean, we talked a lot about my granddad earlier. I do think there's like a lot of times just sitting with him, you know, either in front of the Acorn Electron or, or with his like steam engine or like, there's a number of things like that that like will always be deeply treasured memories. What a fascinating conversation with such an interesting person. I'm delighted to have had him and uh, had that conversation. So on to my top tips. Number one, don't let failures get you down. We all experience failures and sometimes it seems like the worst thing has happened. But actually, if you can zoom out of your momentary pain and look at the bigger picture, it probably isn't that bad. And it might actually be the best thing that could happen to you in the long term. So instead of getting depressed, you should be getting excited because there's probably unknown doors that this failure has just opened up for you. The worst thing that you can do when something goes wrong is to just let it defeat you. Number two, have a process. It's nice to be relaxed and let people be creative in their jobs. But when you're growing a business, this just leads to stuff going wrong and it actually stifles people's ability to innovate when there is no process to make their ideas happen. 
or to work properly with others. So every new thing that comes up, make a process for it. It doesn't have to be the right process straight away. You can use feedback to optimize things and really get it right. But you just have to put something in place immediately or you'll just deal with the consequences much later and you'll have a chaos on your hands. Number three, spend time with your users. If Grays hadn't worked closely with their customers in the early days, they wouldn't have noticed the massive opportunity for the referral scream that exploded their brand across the UK. Who knows where they'd be today if they hadn't noticed this opportunity. Spend time with your customers and get to know them. Observe their first interactions with your brand and product and make the moment really special. Right, and on that note, next week I'm going to be discussing what I'm doing with the podcast and asking you for some feedback and telling you how I'm going to be making the podcast more special and useful for you. And yeah, I'm quite excited for it. It's uh, six months into the year and it's about time to take some stock and talk about what it is I'm doing. I've been running the podcast nearly two years now and haven't really filled anyone in on what it is that I've been up to. And I've, like, I've traveled around the world, I've been to North Korea and done lots of different things and I've been on oil rigs and lots of weird stuff that no one really understands because if I haven't really explained it at all, and I've just moved to Israel and people are like, what, why are you in Israel? So I thought maybe I should answer some of these questions. And um, yeah, you can hear from me next week if you like me. Otherwise, you could just skip next week and wait until I have someone impressive on again. But do so at your peril, I think. I'm going to go deep into mindsets and lessons and how changing the way that I do things can also be implemented in the way that you do things. And I think it should really help you also. Regardless... I hope that this current podcast was useful and that you have a really awesome time in the meanwhile. Yay! You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast. <laughs>